pray with me? Our Father, I thank you again for just gathering your people together today. I thank you for this time together to worship you through our song, through the preaching of your word, through the teaching of your children, to uh, taking uh, communion together, Lord. I pray that this time would be uh, a time of encouragement for us to remember the gospel. I pray that your Holy Spirit be at work even now and over these next few minutes, Lord, that you would speak, that you would say what you want said uh, to each one of us, that you'd have each ear hear what the Holy Spirit has for each one of us. Speak to our hearts. Make yourself known to us, God. Make yourself known to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Know thyself. I think, uh, I think Socrates said that. Know thyself. And, and maybe there's a couple Greek philosophers that said it before him. And I, and I think it's something that our culture loves to pursue, to know thyself. How many of you have taken a personality test or a gifts test? Feel free to respond. Yes. Hands. Got it. Any Myers-Briggs type indicator fans out there? Yeah, I knew somebody would be, a, would be a, an enthusiast of the Myers-Briggs. For, for the rest of us Christians, how about the Enneagram? The, go, the Gospel Enneagram? <laughs> uh, the Gospel Enneagram, maybe you've gone through that. Uh, was that just all sevens that yelled? Like, woo, I don't know. Uh, okay, but and now, now people are correcting me. I'm not a seven. That's cool. Uh, how about, maybe you know your Myers-Briggs stuff. Maybe you got your Enneagram thing done. Uh, which house do you belong to in Hogwarts? <laughs> right? How many of you have taken, like, a bunch of Facebook personality tests? No hands. Liars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, we're always, find, you know, finding these tests and stuff to know ourselves, to know thyself. We take that Socratic commandment seriously in our culture, don't we? Listen to this quote from John Calvin uh, in his Institutes. It says, without the knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. I mean, that kind of feeds into that, right? That feeds the fire. Know thyself in order to know God. But let's, let's let him finish. It says, without the knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. Here's where I'm going with this. I think that through the prophet Hosea and through the book of Hosea, God paints a picture of who Israel really was, who uh, they really were, right? First, by way of demonstration through Hosea's marriage to Gomer, who was a prostitute, and then by indicting Israel, showing that Gomer, that they are just like her, right? Showing that Gomer is an external representation of their own internal realities. And through the prophet Hosea, God is pointing out their behavior and how it points to the what and the who uh, of who they truly worship and how broken their knowledge of God really is. He's trying to help them untangle all those ties like John Calvin talks about. He's trying to help them untangle the ties between who God is and who they would make God to be. He's helping them see themselves rightly, to know themselves 
rightly so that they can rightly see and know God. What we see in Hosea then is letting us in, us today, is letting us in on who God really is. We've been going through the minor prophets all spring, right? And in Jonah, we saw that God was gracious and merciful. He was slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that he relents from disaster. And then in Amos, we saw that God is just and the justifier of his creation. And then in Hosea, we gaze upon the God who is love. We gaze upon the God who is love. And we're confronted with the truth that to know God and to know his love would leave us head over heels in love with him above all else if we truly knew his love for us. So the message for us today, a few thousand years later, is still pretty much the same. Do you really know yourself? Do you really know yourself? Do you really know who God is? Is your lifestyle and your worship evidence that you see yourself rightly and that you rightly see God. We're going to read just a small portion of Hosea this morning. It's Hosea. Did I say Hosea? Yeah, okay. Small portion of Hosea this morning, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It's right, if you don't know where Hosea is, it's right at the beginning of the Minor Prophets, which is a, is a group of several books at the end of the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 4, 1 through 3. I'm going to read this for us. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So they have four, one through three. You know, Reggie started this series last week and he pointed out um, how Israel's worship of God at this time had become so like, syncretized with the worship of Baals or the false gods of the nations surrounding them that they could not even see like how warped their worship of God really was. They totally thought they knew God and totally thought they were worshiping him rightly. They had acquired some very like convoluted ideas by this time about who God is and what worshiping him looked like and what it was all about. And so in chapter 4 of Hosea, the prophet basically brings a charge against Israel. The whole passage actually kind of mimics a court, a court case. If you Go through and read the rest of it. It kind of mimics a court case, a trial. And this specific passage, these three verses that we just read, is the intro. It's the, it's the intro to the charge that's bring, being brought by God. And the point is to show that Israel's sin is serious in the eyes of God. And it's so serious that if it were brought into court, it would end the covenantal relationship between God and his people, Israel. He would be proven, God would be proven just in a court case. He'd be proven just in permanently leaving the relationship. If it were a divorce court, God would be found faithful and the people would be found adulterous and unfaithful and they'd be entitled to nothing from God. They'd get no alimony. Of course, as we said, the book started with this 
this picture and this story of Hosea and Gomer. And any reader would, would feel able to make a judgment concerning Gomer. She was a prostitute. She cheated on her husband. She had children with, with the people she prostituted with. She went back into prostitution and, and, and just was not faithful at all and ends up in slavery. She was a cheater. She's an adulterer. And if Hosea chose to let her go, nobody would stand in judgment over him. Nobody would say that he was responsible for her in any way. She brought this stuff on herself so the relationship could be severed and Hosea would still be just. We, we saw that in the picture painted by the marriage of Hosea and Gomer. And it's, it's kind of hard to understand why Gomer would do this, right? Why she would act in such a way. Like who can understand why somebody would leave a loving husband and her children in order to sell her body to others? to use her. How could she put herself in those places? And, and, and of course, I think even it'd be easy for us to stand in a place of judgment and say, of course she ended up in slavery. Like, what, what was at the end of the road that we didn't see coming? Where else could it have led to? But now, and, and really for the rest of the book, what was plain about Gomer is what God, through Hosea, is trying to get Israel to see about themselves. It's not to stand in judgment of Gomer is to see about themselves. Israel is Gomer, right? They have cheated on God over and over and over again. They are adulterers. They are prostitutes who actually sell themselves to be used and enslaved by the idols of their neighboring nations. And eventually the consequences of their actions are going to lead them to, to destruction and to exile. Why would, they, why would they do this to themselves? Why would they do that? Don't they see where the idolatry is leading? Don't they see where this road goes? Why are they so seduced? I was watching a movie the other day. It was on Amazon. I, I was watching it with my father-in-law. I can't even tell you what the movie was. It wasn't good. But <laughs> there was this part where these detectives, like, are, like they, they bust in the door of this... Uh, like heroin, this drug house, right? And everybody in there is like all on heroin and it's just a dirty, grimy place and there's just all these rooms with like graffiti and dirt on the walls and like dirty mattresses and people are just laid out getting high. And I, and I, I said it out loud at the time when we were watching it because I didn't care about the movie and I was thinking about other things. Uh, I said, what? like how do you ever walk into a place like this and decide, yeah, that's what, I'd like to spend my money here. This is the experience I've been looking for, right? Why do people do that to themselves, right? Don't they see where it's leading them? Why are they so seduced? And we know it's not like that's how it goes down, right? They don't just walk in and say, yeah, it's, this looks nice. No, they, they get there because they're seduced into it and they are blinded. They think they know themselves. They think they know God, but they've got things all twisted, and maybe you, like me, have loved ones who've hit rock bottom. Or maybe you yourself have hit rock bottom at some point. Maybe you've gotten into drugs bad. Or you know somebody who's gotten into drugs bad. Or into a dangerous sexual situation. Or some other issue that makes it obvious to everybody around them that they are in serious trouble. And that they're hurting the people who love them and they're really hurting themselves. And all you want to do is help them see reality help shake them out of it. In our culture, we might stage an intervention, right? We might circle up and 
just try to get real honest with them and help them see. Well, Hosea's intervention looks like bringing a case against Israel. That's what we're looking at here in chapter 4. It looks like bringing a case against Israel in order to open up their eyes to the reality of their condition. This case against Israel starts with this intro in 4, 1 through 3 that we just read, but, but all the evidence that is really needed is summarized at the end of that, la- of that first verse. It says, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. See, faithfulness and steadfast love, those are two characteristics that are, that are recognized. It's a recognized word pair in ancient Israel. Those words paired together, it typically is describing the attributes of God, right? So the lack of these characteristics in Israel, the, the, the implication is obvious. The lack of these characteristics in Israel is a failure on the part of the nation to reflect an adequate knowledge of God. If they truly knew who God was, if they truly knew what he was like, then they would know that he is steadfast and faithful, and they would be steadfast and faithful. But that's not in them. J. Andrew Dearman writes of this uh, introduction to the case, and he says this. He says, it's, it is devastating in what it claims. In essence, the charge is that among the people of God, there is no conduct and no character in accord with God's revealed will and consistent with his character. How could they claim to know God and worship him if nothing in their own conduct or character aligns with his? Right? And then not only is there a lack of, of conduct and character that reflects the character of God, that accords with God's character. There is conduct that is in direct contradiction to God's will, direct contradiction to his character. And we see that in verse 2, right? It says there's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. The break, they break all bounds and bloodshed flows follows bloodshed. This isn't just a list of sins. This is evidence. This is evidence that God's people have broken their covenant with God. I mean, it's directly pointing back to the Ten Commandments, the summary of their covenantal requirements with God and for that relationship. One author writes that they swear. That means they take, they take the names of the Lord's name in vain. They, they lie, they murder, they steal, they commit adultery. They break all the boundaries that are laid out to regulate their covenantal relationship with God. This is, if this is divorce court, They're cheaters. The evidence is stacked against them. They're covenant breakers. They're cheaters. They're adulterers. Their conduct reveals the truth that they are not following their God and they are following something or somebody else. What happens when our relationship to God is not right? What happens in our behavior when our relationship with God is not right? It's crimes against each other and ourselves that start to prevail, right? They divide us. The things, we, the, 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 the things we do in our conduct and our crimes against each other, they divide us, they destroy our relationships with each other, with, to others and with all things in creation. It's not even just our human relationships, right? And so that's what verse 3 is up to. It says, Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Like I read that and I read this and I just, I immediately get it. Like those who aren't in right relationship with God create hell on earth. When God would give us heaven on earth. 
right? When we're not in right relationship with God, when we don't truly know him, we create hell on earth when God would give us hell on earth. Sometimes I become like uber aware of this, and maybe you do too. Like I'll hear people arguing or, or, or I'll be thinking about how somebody has tried to manipulate me or tried to manipulate somebody else or try to manipulate a, a situation for their own benefit. Uh, or sometimes when I hear bad news about a friend's marriage or, or something like that or about somebody passing or I hear bad news of violence just in our country, which we've had plenty of. The world seems to like all of a sudden just go into slow motion around me and I've just become acutely aware of how we forsake God and that when we forsake God, we create hell on earth. And you could just feel it. And in those moments, like everything in me longs for us to become more aware of his kingdom and more aware of his presence so that we wouldn't be so fooled into believing that we had to act in all these ways which really just destroy each other and everything that he's made. I just become more and more aware and it creates a longing for his presence and his peace that he brings. Maybe you feel that too. And as we see in Hosea's charge, Israel's the same as Gomer. I've already said it. They're cheaters. They're adulterers. They're prostitutes. They sell themselves into slavery and they create hell on earth for their loved ones and everybody else. What we need to be awakened to is this is that we too are Gomer. We too are like Israel. We are both of them. They are external representations of our internal realities. I mean, this stuff could be said about us. We have been cheaters. We have been harlots. We have sold ourselves into slavery. We've hurt people. We've hurt the world around us. And what's more, just as a mother and a wife like Gomer must, must hurt the heart of her husband and hurt the heart of her children, we have hurt the heart of God. That's true. See, in this picture of Gomer and Hosea in this book and how God is showing us who he is through their marriage, he isn't just the accuser here. He's not just the accuser. Accusing isn't even the whole point. This isn't just... The thing that God does where he's like, hey, you broke the rules again, right? He's not just the accuser. The point is to reveal the truth about who he is to his people. To make himself known, he shows himself in contrast with who they have been, right? And then he shows how he has responded and how he will respond to them. That's the beauty of Hosea. It isn't just an indictment. It's not just an accusation. It's not just a criminal charge. It's all of those things, but that's not all of it. It's all of that in order to show us who we really are in light of who God is and how he passionately pursues his people. He stages a great intervention. He buys back his whore wife out of slavery. He ransoms her. He doesn't just demand that the contract be fulfilled. He speaks tenderly to her. He allures her. Listen to this in Hosea 2, 14 through 16. I think we read it last week, but let's listen to it again. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, which means trouble, 
a door of hope. That means he will make the valley of trouble a door of hope for us. And there shall, there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land, land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Listen, God, the good news here is that God goes out for his people like it's his bride and like he's madly in love with her because he is madly in love with his people. He goes out for her and he wins her back. For whatever reason, as I read this, this is funny to me. I keep picturing that scene in the 80s teen movie, Say Anything, where John Cusack is holding the boombox up over his head, like blasting Peter Gabriel. Right? God does something incredibly romantic, but with God it's not quite as weird and cheesy and strange, right? No, the promise, the promise of hope, the promise of ransom for the captivity that we sold ourselves into, the promise of his allure is the promise of the greatest act of love we can know. It's the promise of Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, it says this. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, Jesus came to be the door of hope in our valley of trouble. He came so that we can know God intimately by looking at Jesus. What couldn't be made clear through, through mere prophets, he came to show us for himself. He is the greatest love we will ever know. And more than anything, as we continue in this book of Hosea, just for the next couple weeks, and as we enter into the Passion Week this week, and as we gather here next week for, for Easter, for Resurrection Sunday, more than anything, I want us to witness this love story. And I don't want you to miss out on the greatest love you'll ever know. Because the reality is that Jesus came. God came in bodily form to die on a cross for us. That's bigger than a boombox over our head, right? But to understand why he did it, to understand why he died, to truly know him, we have to be willing to be confronted by what he has done and why. We have to be willing to know ourselves. We have to be willing to be tested by the test of the cross and to know thyself in the shadow of the cross. He died because he loves us. He died because he loves us, but he had to die because of the reality of our condition. Because of the grotesque things we do to ourselves and to each other. He had to die because we cheat on him with others. He had to die to buy us out of the slavery we sold ourselves into. Slavery to idols and to sin. Slavery to power and money and control and reputation and acceptance. Slavery to sex and an identity rooted in whether or not other people want our sex. 
He died to show how deep his love is for you. But he had to die because of your sin. The cross is hard to look at. Because it definitely exposes like the rotten, grotesque parts of us. And that's hard. And it's not about just looking, looking at ourselves and feeling really guilty and bad, right? Looking at the cross is hard. But ultimately it does that, like exposing of the rotten parts of us, so that we can finally see ourselves rightly and look upon God for who he really is and know him rightly. So here's what I, I want from us this morning. We're going to wrap up. Here's what I want you from, from me this morning. Some of you have kind of taken the season of Lent, possibly, to, to consider the reality of your sin. Some of you haven't. That's okay. But today is Palm Sunday, and, and Friday is Good Friday. So I just want us to take a moment to pause today and just prepare our heart. Like, let's not just, I know this week is like crazy, right? I know it's been crazy. We've rented our houses out. We've gone out of town. We've done all kinds of work. Maybe you've watched a little golf. We're not settled in yet. Tomorrow's Monday. People are still be coming back. We're not settled in, and we probably won't be settled in for the rest of the week. But let's just take a moment and pause and not just walk into this week blindly and not knowing what's going on and what it is we're celebrating through these holidays. Let's pause. Let's look in the mirror and see the reality of our own condition as we look to Jesus and see how big and wide his love must be for us. It's not until we see that we're sold into slavery because of the grotesque things we've done for ourselves that we realize, man, he must really love us to come after us even more. So as we enter time of response this morning, it's just a good time to begin that reflection. We're going to sing. You can bring your tithes and offerings. We have a basket in the back where you can put those or you can get information on, on how to give in other ways. And we're going to come and take communion like we do each Sunday. You can come down each one of these aisles, and there'll be people here to serve. And you can take the bread, and you can dip it in the wine or the juice, the bread being the body of Christ that was given for you, the the, the wine being the, the, the blood that was shed for us, right? And we can remember Jesus Christ is who he says he is. We can remember that he came and that he died for us. And we can remember why he had to die for us. And when we come, we can take and we can remember it and we can proclaim its truth to one another. Jesus is our Lord and Savior and he's the greatest love of our life. And as we do these things, let's take an honest look at ourselves. Let's see the reality of our condition before him and realize how deep and wide and how great our God's love is for us. And let's allow ourselves just to feel his embrace as we worship him together in this community this morning. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your love. And when we start, when we start talking about your love, I, I'm tearing up the whole time. It's so big. Lord, I pray that you just help us to realize 
who we are and what we've done. Not so we can wallow in guilt and shame, but so that we can like look up and accept your embrace, that we can accept your rescue, that we can know your love for us, that we can feel how you cherished us as your bride, how you've known us as your children and loved us as your children. Or as we walk into this week, this Passion Week, we very intentionally are looking towards the cross on Friday. And as we come back next Sunday to celebrate your resurrection, Lord, I pray that you would give us that pause, that you would give our soul that pause so we can stop and just stand in awe of your great love for us. Make Jesus known to our hearts this morning in such a way. In Jesus' name, amen. is God, our hearts and hopes, comfort seems a siren tune, we're a valley of dry bones, lead us back to life and you,
Man. 